We talk about letting our light shine and our students do that in everything they do, whether it's research or whether it's athletic performances or whether it's dance performances, music. But I also get super excited about the stage that this provides for us as a university. It was probably no more apparent than when our football coach at the Big 12 Media Days, Kalani Sitake, lead with, I am so grateful for my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's who got us where we are today. And all of a sudden, these media correspondents who were gathered there just stopped, looked up, and I heard them behind me saying, I could play for that guy. And I think that's the kind of opportunities that we have. This is Sarah Jane Weaver, Executive Editor of The Church News, welcoming you to The Church News Podcast. We are taking you on a journey of connection as we discuss news and events of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. On March 21, 2023, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints announced a new president for Brigham Young University, C. Shane Reese. On May 1st, the former academic vice president of the university took on his new role. Of President Reese, Elder Holland said, quote, The Lord has prepared him in profound ways. He has the confidence and trust of the Church Board of Education to lead BYU at this critical time. On this episode of the Church News Podcast, we are excited to get to know President Reese. He joins us to talk about his experiences, testimony, and his vision as BYU's 14th president. Welcome to the Church News Podcast, President. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Your appointment as the 14th president of BYU puts you in a pretty elite crowd of church leaders and others who have also led this university. Can you share some of your feelings as you join this very elite club? Uh Boy, it is uh, not only an elite club, but this is a, a club of a cast of characters, if you will, of people who have, for me, been mentors, heroes, people that I have admired from the time I was a little kid. It really is uh, humbling, and I feel completely and totally honored, but also at the same time, I feel very intimidated by being a part of this uh, club. <laughs> Are there things that you've learned from observing past presidents? Yeah, I, I have. And, you know, uh, for so many people, the first names that come to mind are uh, President Oaks and Elder Holland, uh, two uh, amazing individuals who have led lives of faith and have been just remarkable in the world of higher education. It starts there. Elder Holland has been such a, a mentor to me personally. Uh, he's, as the former chair of our executive committee, I had interactions with him and he was always so encouraging and he was helpful to me uh, when I was trying to navigate my way as a academic vice president. It's kind of strange to have a first-generation college student who is the academic vice president, but Elder Holland provided just tremendous amount of uh, mentoring and encouragement and support. My first president that I was exposed to, and so I started attending BYU in 1989, uh, and that was just in the transition from President Holland to President Lee. 
and Rex Lee to see a former solicitor general of the United States stand up as the president of our university with his wife, Janet, uh, as they stood up there together. I remember as an impressionable freshman gathered in the Marriott Center thinking, wow, uh, I was starstruck <laughs> by President Sister Lee, just their grace and how amazing they were as leaders. They were incredible people to me. And I remember the first time I got to meet them, they were gathered with a bunch of freshman students. And just as I shook his hand, I had this sense that this was a man of incredible wisdom, but amazing kindness. And that is something that I've always admired about President and Sister Lee. The next person I had was uh, President Bateman was the president when I was hired at BYU. Interestingly enough, I'll, I'll go back an interesting story. Every faculty who is hired at BYU is interviewed by a general authority. It's a choice opportunity for our faculty. And the person who interviewed me was then Elder Cecil O. Samuelson, which was, was an amazing experience. And so my exposure to President Bateman was remarkable. He's the one who onboarded me as a new faculty member. I remember the first meeting he held with all the new faculty members and how encouraging he was, not only in our academic careers, uh, recognized that trying to get tenure at universities is a hard thing, uh, but he, he was so encouraging and, and strengthening for me as a junior faculty member. But he was also regularly reminding our faculty, new faculty especially, uh, of kind of the unique mission we had at BYU. Uh, and then came along my general authority interview, President Cecil O. Samuelson, and he has long been a great friend. Uh, I think a lot of people, when they think of President Samuelson, they think of someone who was a steward over the professionalization of BYU. We became, I think, a real university with a academic mission that was solidified under his leadership. But he was also an incredible disciple in his academic work. Uh, he gave a great talk on the disciple scholar at BYU that I still regularly refer to. Love President Samuelson. And President Samuelson had this great sense of humor. You'd love to walk across campus. I somehow found myself as a kind of a new faculty member walking across campus with President Samuelson. And he is an incredibly funny man uh, who has a great sense of not only an academic institution, but also of the gospel. I love President Samuelson. And then President Samuelson gave way to President Worthen. President Worthen and I have a fairly long history uh, that goes way back to when I was an undergraduate, and he has been a pivotal figure in my life. He's wise. He's humble. He has a deep love of BYU, of its students, and talk about someone who is a faithful follower of the Savior, President Worthen is exemplary in so many different respects. And so when you look at that long list of people with whom I've just had personal experience with, you could see how this is a, quite a humbling appointment. And you shared a story after you were announced as BYU president about President Worthen. I know it's a long story, but can you summarize it for us? Yeah, it's, it's, I can summarize this story of when I first got to BYU. I'll, I'll just say I was a bit lost. Uh, I was a first-generation college student. It felt like a big place, and I felt fairly overwhelmed, so much so that I was pretty inclined to go home. And I called my mom and said, I'm ready to go home. And she said, uh, well, look, I'll come pick you up. She was ready to pack up the car, and we were going to head back to New Mexico, which is where I was raised. And uh, then uh, she happened to visit with her, with our bishop, when I was growing up, who was a close family friend, and, and his name was Clyde. And 
he visited with Clyde and Clyde said, well, before you decide to pack it up, Shane should just go talk to my brother, who's a young law school faculty member. And I was pretty intimidated, but given that it was Clyde's brother, I felt like it was someone I might be able to to trust and might might listen to me. Uh, well, Clyde's last name just happens to be Worthen, and his brother happens to be Kevin Worthen. And here was this law school faculty member who who they seem a little bit like they're kind of up there in the hierarchy of the university. And he just spent time with me and reassured me that he thought that if I'd give BYU a chance, that I might actually find that I enjoyed the place. And it was just the kindness to take time out of a busy day to visit for a few minutes with a young student who was struggling that began really what for me is is a bit of Kevin Worthen awestruckness that I have. He from that day became a mentor, a friend, someone on whom I could rely for advice, encouragement, and support. And when I joined the faculty, we had opportunities to interact, and he has continued to be, uh, for me, uh, just such a mentor, a friend, and an example of someone who loves the students at BYU and and one whose example I, I hope to even come close to emulating. As we look back on the influence of all these amazing leaders, which influenced your time at BYU and mine, uh, we were there at the same time. I think it's interesting to talk about something else. You know, we often remember that Elder Holland was leading the school when we won a national championship in football, and President Lee was leading when Ty Demmer won the Heisman, and you're taking the helm just as we go to the Big 12. <laughs> Let's talk about that. What, what can we expect from football this year? Well, first of all, it's an exciting time to be part of the Big 12. One of the things that I was super impressed with, this was my very first meeting as president with the Big 12 presidents. And we get together and this is kind of an official board meeting kind of setting. And it looks very board meeting like we're mostly talking about business. And I wondered, how are they going to receive this faith-based institution who is unapologetic about our spiritual mission? It's something that we lead with. And to walk into that room and have there be such a uh, an acceptance, such a welcoming arm around us from all of the Big 12 schools was remarkable. So the first thing I would say is that we're just thrilled to be a part of the Big 12. We felt nothing but being welcomed by the Big 12. It has been just an incredible thing thus far. So we're certainly excited about what's in store for football. That was, I think, your question. But we also recognize we're playing a whole other level of competition uh, in football. Basketball may even be a stiffer competition than it is with football. We have some sports where we think we're going to enter right away and be super competitive. We're fresh off an amazing victory over UCLA in women's soccer. Uh, we just had a huge win in women's volleyball against uh, the last year's uh, semifinal team in Pitt. And our cross-country teams are world-class, so we expect to see great things out of them. And we just know that all of our sports, it's going to be an opportunity to compete against uh, some new competition. So it's an exciting time. I get really excited about the competition on the pitch, in the pool, on the field. But I also get super excited about the stage that this provides for us as a university. We talk about letting our light shine. And our students do that in everything they do, whether it's research or whether it's athletic performances or whether it's dance performances, music. But this gives us a whole different stage with new people to interact with. 
And I think that's maybe the more exciting thing for me as president is to see the stage that this gives us. It was probably no more apparent than when our football coach at the Big 12 Media Days stood up and one of the new schools and sort of the big uh, names in the Big 12 had already gone and, and he stood up and the media were all sitting there and they kind of were rumbling about because it was kind of a, a lesser known personality. And to have Kalani Sitake lead with, I am so grateful for my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's who got us where we are today. And all of a sudden, these media correspondents who were gathered there, who were really rummaging about, just stopped, looked up. And I heard them behind me saying, I could play for that guy. And I think that's the kind of opportunities that we have with our entrance into the Big 12. And so we're really excited. And you don't just have great faculty staff coaches, but some unique students. I just watched Kenneth Rooks represent the United States at the Worlds in Steeplechase. And he came on the Church News podcast and said, every time before I race, I pray that I can be a tool in the Lord's hand. How do you get such great kids? Well, the truth is there's great kids in the church, and these kids, I think, want to come to a place where they can study in an atmosphere of faith and where academics is excellent, but that we don't have to choose between those two things. Kenneth is an amazing example. If people haven't heard, and boy, I'd be amazed if there's anyone left who hasn't heard, but falling down in a 3,000-meter race, which is not a super long race, you're done. That race is over at that point, but Kenneth saw an opportunity to sort of reach deep within inside himself, and I'm sure he will tell you that it's some of the lessons he learned on his mission when he was knocked down uh, as a missionary to get back up and to not give up, to keep racing, and to hear the call of this race. It is an amazing experience, and you talk to Kenneth. He is emblematic of exactly the kinds of students that we're blessed to have at BYU. Uh, He's an amazing kid. Not only is he this incredible athlete, I mean, to get up from this fall, I mean, he fell all the way to the ground. He was a dead last by a long shot. And to come racing back and finish that race in first place was remarkable. But the other thing about Kenneth is he's a mechanical engineering major. This is like one of our hardest majors on campus. And he is just an incredible kid. And there's a hundred kids just like Kenneth who are in various different aspects. Some of them are in athletics. Some of them are dance team members. Some of them are performers in music, and they do it all so well. They're intimidating. They're amazing kids. (laughs) And I want to take a minute and actually talk about you and what brought you to this point. You mentioned Kenneth's mission. You served in Taiwan, Taipei Mission. What kind of influence did that have on your life? So I talked to young people all the time about my mission, in part because it was just such a transformative experience. It was, first of all, my testimony of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ grew in ways that it couldn't have happened without that experience. It's true that I think everyone has their own path that gets them to where they are with their testimony. And I think that's one of the wonderful things is is we're not all going to have the exact same path to arrive where we are in life. But my mission was transformative. I had to do hard things. I remember having concrete floors that we swept layers and layers of dust off and didn't really make much progress in terms of the dirt levels of our apartments. We rode bikes uh, through hot, sweltering heat every day. It was intense. But the joy that I felt in doing so 
was life changing. Every day I woke up uh, with this sense of it's a new day, an exciting day, and I'm going to get to teach people the gospel of Jesus Christ. How could it get any better than this? It really was for me life changing and transformative for everything that's happened since. It really is the basis and the foundation for what uh, my life has become. And the other thing I would say is I'm not sure my wife would have married me if I had not served a mission. So I'm grateful for that. That's the single best decision I've made in my life is to marry my wife. And I think for her, it was an important thing that she married a return missionary. So, so there's that too. So a kid from New Mexico ends up at BYU, then in Taiwan. Uh, tell us about your youth. So I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I was born in Logan, uh, Utah, and we lived there for just a few months. And then I uh, moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico with my mom. My mom raised me as a single mom. My folks were divorced when I was uh, very young. My mom is an amazing human being. It was a difficult thing at that time trying to make a living without a college degree. But my mom worked her tail off and was able to support us and for me, I, I always felt like I had this kind of fairy tale existence. Uh, she always made it seem like things were great. And I'm certain that that wasn't the case. I'm certain that times were tight financially and otherwise. But my mom did amazing work to help me feel like things were, were wonderful. And I, I just had a, a great existence growing up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It was an area where we didn't have a lot of members of the church. That was part of why arriving at BYU my freshman year was somewhat challenging because I wasn't used to being surrounded by members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and that was a challenge for me. It should have been a, a blessing, but it was just so different from what I was used to. But my mom was incredible. She taught me the value of hard work. My mom is, is an amazing hard worker. Uh, her work ethic exceeds mine by leaps and bounds, uh, and she tried to instill in me uh, a sense of hard work. So... That's sort of what my existence as a, as growing up as an only child was like. And we talked before this podcast about the fact that we might have been in a few BYU classes together, but I can guarantee you they weren't statistics. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't take one statistics class. I, I got a tutor to get me through. And so tell us how you chose that path. Yeah, it's a kind of a roundabout path. It's not like I woke up, you know, one day and decided statistics was the thing to do. In fact, uh, BYU used to send letters to students who had taken the ACT and performed well in math. They would send them a letter saying, hey, do you want to major in statistics? It was kind of an initiative by the Department of Statistics to recruit students. Uh, and they sent me one. And when we got it, my mom said, whatever you do, don't study statistics. Those people are the most boring human beings on the planet. <laughs> I still remember her saying that. So it wasn't like that was my lifelong dream, but I would say that there's two things. First, I'm a kind of an avid sports fan and have been since I was a little kid. And so reading box scores was always something that was fascinating to me. Watching uh, sort of what the statistics were for individual players and teams, that was exciting. I came into BYU thinking I was going to be an engineer. I took the, this is why you want to be an engineer class and, and I thought, I don't want to do that. And that was supposed to be the class that convinced you to be an engineer. So I knew I wasn't going to do engineering at that point. And then I thought maybe business. And one of the prerequisites for the business program at the time was introductory statistics. And I'd had the math so I could jump right into that. I took that class and I fell in love. I mean, it really was kind of a, from an academic perspective, a love at first sight. Once I took that class, I was hooked. 
Uh, I got my undergraduate degree in statistics. I got my master's degree in statistics and I got my PhD in statistics. And it really has been something I've been passionate about. I love that you can make decisions with data. I love that you can apply it to a wide variety of different applications. My friends sometimes tell me I have uh, intellectual ADHD because I can't decide an area where to apply my statistical tools, everything from climate to sports to uh, nuclear weapons. The, it's just an amazing thing to be for me to be a statistician. And, and, and I love talking about it. I love teaching it. And when we look at your career, you just mentioned some of it. Your mom probably was a little off base by saying that, that it was boring because you have developed models involving chemical weapons and climate change, as well as working with the U.S. Olympic team and the NFL. What have been some highlights? You just mentioned some of the highlights. Uh, uh, foray into sports really began with a faculty member in graduate school at Texas A&M. He and I used to argue about who was the greatest home run hitter of all time. And he would always talk about these kind of older players. And I would talk about the younger players. And we would have just these debates about who it was. And it was really kind of two sports junkies talking over lunch. But at one point, we decided, you know what? We should write a paper about this. We think we can go collect all the data that we need. And then we ended up writing a paper about home run hitting and hitting for average and hockey players and to identify the greatest athlete of all time in each of those four different areas. And this was like my first big paper in statistics. It turned out to be something that people resonated with. They were interested in the topic. We appeared on a few radio shows. Canadians didn't like what we said about the greatest hockey player of all time. Uh, some people in Texas didn't like what we said about the best home run hitter of all time. And so that led to kind of a, a snowballing effect in terms of studying sports statistics. And so all of my work with sports is something that I get really excited about, partially because that sort of marries my interest in statistics with my interest in sports. I've done work for the U.S. Olympic Committee, one of the sort of really figureheads in all of volleyball. Coaching is a guy named Carl McGowan, who used to be BYU's head coach. And he is a guy who just believed you can coach based on what data tell you. And so he loved that we would be willing to help him analyze data and give him insights into his coaching. And so that developed a relationship with Coach McGowan, who then had relationships with the U.S. Olympic Committee, and that's how we got involved there. And interestingly enough, it was Carl McGowan sitting on a plane next to someone who was a grad student at the time he was a young faculty member at BYU. Carl was a young faculty member, and one of the grad assistants with the football team got to know Carl and loved his focus on data. Well, this grad assistant later on became the head coach of the NFL's Philadelphia Eagles, a guy named Andy Reid. They were on a plane one day and Carl McGowan said, you know, if you're interested in sort of how to use data, you should talk to these guys in the stat department at BYU. And that's how Andy Reid got my name and got a phone call from him one day and asked if we'd be willing to do some work to help them understand how to better use data in their coaching. So all of these things sort of built off of each other. And it's been a great thing. I've done a lot of work in kind of environmental statistics as well. That's one of the areas that I get really excited about studying glaciers in high mountain Asia and in Antarctica. And those are some really interesting uh, results that I've continued to work on uh, until my new job where I haven't had time to work on anything but this. And then the last thing is I spent kind of a little bit of a career at Los Alamos National Laboratory and doing work in nuclear weapons and, and as you mentioned, chemical weapons as well. 
And boy, for a, a kid growing up thinking of blowing stuff up, that sounds cool. Uh, and, and it really was uh, exciting work, high level science with big implications. So all of these areas I'd call kind of my, my highlights of my research that I still look back fondly on. So you hinted at my next question, but you gave all that up to go into university administration. Help us understand that. It's it's probably not true to make this blanket state, but I don't think very many people who go into academics go into it thinking, I want to be a university administrator when I grow up. <laughs> uh, and I certainly did not ever think that. In fact, at one point, someone approached me about being the department chair in my home department of statistics. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm not interested really in administrative works. I said, maybe at some point in my career, that'll be something I, I do, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. And then uh, I guess one of the things that I realized, someone invited me to apply to be the dean of the College of Physical and Mathematical Sciences, which is where statistics sits at BYU. And I just sort of took them up on the invitation and, and put my name in the hat. And my predecessor's academic vice president was, was uh, Elder Jim Rasband of the 70. And uh, he was then the academic vice president. And he invited me to be the dean of that college. And one of the things I realized is that as an administrator at a university, you get to scale your impact in a different way than you do as a faculty member. I could facilitate for other faculty members the excitement that I got from being a faculty member, whether it be teaching or research or kind of citizenship within the university. I could facilitate that and scale that effort. It, it is a different kind of excitement, but it has rewards. And I always felt like if I could help someone else or hopefully a whole college full of faculty members try to do their jobs better, then there was some reward in that. But there's no question. The thing I miss the most is being in the classroom. The reason I went from Los Alamos, which is primarily a research job, to being at BYU is being in the classroom, being with students, seeing their eyes light up when they figured out what a T-test really was doing. That moment where the light bulbs go on and you see it go on in their eyes, there's no replacement for that. Well, and I want to talk about your time in administration because you've had some pretty hard assignments. In recent years, you directed the BYU Committee on Race, Equality, and Belonging. Tell us what the purpose of the committee it was and how its recommendations actually impacted the university. Yeah. The Committee on Race, Equity, and Belonging was uh, a committee formed by President Worthen. It was during the era where the George Floyd situation had unfolded and there was a lot of unrest. And um, there was some concern that maybe the experience of students of color, uh, faculty of color at BYU was not very positive. And so President Worthen formed the committee. And I will just say that we got a group of people together. He, he sort of invited me to be the chair of that committee. And we formed a committee from a, a wide variety of different experiences, a wide variety of different positions at the university. There were faculty, there were staff, there were administrative employees. And we sort of all got in a room. And the truth is, that room was full of a bunch of different opinions on what the right strategy going forward was. But what we did is being able to engage in discussions with one another, to counsel together, to hear one another's perspective, even though we might not agree with everyone in the room, was such a valuable thing. 
and we formed some recommendations. And I would say that the single most important thing that came out of that was the establishment of the Office of Belonging at BYU. Our Office of Belonging is remarkable in part because it's based on what we call the Statement on Belonging, and it focuses first and foremost on our common shared identity as children of God. Only at a place like BYU that is built on the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Can we lead with that statement? You start there and all of a sudden the questions where we might've had disagreements become the secondary questions. We can talk about primary issues. We can resonate and unify around primary issues. And then we can talk about these secondary questions. And it's not that those aren't important. It's just that we lead with the most important thing. And I think of that as the most amazing thing ever. We have a new vice president of belonging, Carl Hernandez, who's doing remarkable things. And it changes the nature of the conversations we've had. We've had institutions from all over the country come and talk to us about our approach because they've heard it's different. And so that's an exciting thing that came out of that work. And I also want to talk to you about some changes recently announced throughout not just BYU, but other church schools. Ensign College, BYU-Hawaii, BYU-Idaho, and that is a revised student ecclesiastical endorsement questions, a revised honor code, and then dress and grooming standards. So how are these changes going to impact BYU students? Uh, That's a great question, and boy, I could not be more excited about these. uh, And I'm just going to call them changes because in some respects, there's not huge changes to our practices on campus. The first thing that I think I'm most excited about is that our ecclesiastical endorsement is now aligned with ecclesiastical responsibilities. (laughs) In the past, there had been a little bit of confounding of our dress and grooming standards of our honor code with the ecclesiastical leaders and the ecclesiastical endorsement. So we were asking ecclesiastical leaders to visit with uh, one of the people that are in their congregation about something that wasn't ecclesiastical at all. And so to align ecclesiastical leaders with ecclesiastical matters seems like an incredible innovation and one that's probably past its time. We're we're really excited about that. In visiting with ecclesiastical leaders, we hold an annual meeting. They were all thrilled with the idea that they were going to be able to focus their interviews on ecclesiastical matters. So that's the first change, and it's amazing. Our honor code didn't change substantively at all. In fact, there's very little change to our honor code, except the preamble to our honor code is much more aspirational. Our previous honor code had language that almost looked like it was constructed by a lawyer. It had very legalese leading into it, which is it fine. It probably was constructed it by a lawyer. <laughs> Uh, But, you know, it's much more aspirational. I think a student would read that and feel inspired about then reading on to the principles, the concepts involved with the honor code down below. Uh, So really excited about that change. And then when we get to the dress and grooming standards, following the pattern that we see in the For the Strength of Youth, it's principle-based. And it has some standards, some expectations that are attached to that, but it's principle-based. If you look at the standards and expectations that are added to these principles, one of the things that you see is that they don't represent a big change in our practice, certainly not at BYU. 
turns out maybe the biggest change across CES is that students at BYU-Idaho are now allowed to wear shorts. shorts. (laughs) I think that might have been the biggest uh, statement in this address and grooming standards. But for me, the exciting part about this new announcement from the church educational system and endorsed and approved by our board of education is that we have principles to talk with our students about. In the past, we were talking about standards, and it felt very much like a checklist. We can now have meaningful discussions with our students that are principle-based, and I think that, for me, is maybe the most exciting part of this announcement as it relates to dress and grooming standards. And I'm a mother who has two daughters at BYU. Right. I actually like rules. I like, <laughs> I like saying, wow, this is what you can wear. This is what you can't wear. To me, it reflects a lot of trust in your students, just like the new For Strength of Youth guide reflects a lot of trust in the youth of the church. Because instead of saying, this is what you will or won't do, you're saying, how do you represent the Savior? How do you represent BYU? And what does that look like for you personally? I kind of liked to scapegoat the university administration and say, nope, you're not wearing that. It doesn't work in the dress and grooming standards for BYU. And so... Do you trust your students? Is this a reflection of that? It's absolutely a representation of trust in our students. And we also recognize that our students are at various stages of their understanding, various stages of their commitment to the principles that we're talking about here, and that that's going to involve some education, some conversations. And I think that that will be some of the most incredible results of this new change is that we're going to be able to have different conversations. When I talk to parents who have had conversations with their children about the for the strength of youth standards and principles, they say it changed the nature of the conversations. And while there might have been some change in behavior, some of it was temporary. When they'd had the meaningful conversations around the principles, they were deeper conversations. They were more impactful conversations. And we anticipate that that same thing is going to hold true on our campus. We recognize that there may be a period of time sort of feels like uh, anything goes, but that's not at all the principle. The principle here is that we're asking for you to read the principles and try to incorporate them in your lives. One of the phrases that I love as part of our dress and grooming standards are that we anticipate that our students are going to let these principles guide their choices about specific aspects of their dress and grooming. It's really an invitation. So not only is it the principles, but it's an invitation to our students. I think it's phenomenal, and it shows trust. But as with parents when For the Strength of Youth came out, we trust and then we swallow and gulp and hope and pray for our children, and that's the same thing we're doing at BYU for our students. Great. You know, after your position was announced, you gave remarks and referenced a speech by President Spencer W. Kimball in 1976. You said, BYU can become an educational Everest. Tell us what you meant by that. Yeah. So President Kimball's talk at BYU is one that we read often. I think every employee at the university has read that talk, and many of them have read that multiple times. It is what we call the second century address. It is because he described the next hundred years for BYU. And as Elder Holland pointed out, 
we're approaching the end of the first half of that 100 years here in 2025. And it is an exciting time for us. We feel like we've had prophetic direction at BYU, starting with President Kimball's talk. It actually started with President Kimball's talk that he gave in 1956 called Education for Eternity. Follow that up with the Second Century Address, which is a remarkable address, really the the seminal address for Brigham Young University in its history that describes this educational Mount Everest. We've had President Oaks of the First Presidency talk to us about our prophetic destiny as a university. We had Elder Bednar of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles come to BYU and talk about our prophetic destiny and how we could be unique in an educational landscape. We had Elder Holland come and talk to us about the second half of the second century in an amazing talk where he reiterated the importance for us to become like the institution that prophets on our campus had foretold. That's what we mean by the educational Mount Everest. That's what we mean when we say we want to become that university. We've had prophetic direction. We don't have to invent a new direction. It is becoming what prophets, seers, and revelators have foretold BYU could become. And so much of that is going to be us leaning into not only our academic mission, which is critical and important and something we have to pursue with vigor, but our spiritual mission has to be our anchor. We can't abandon those spiritual roots because otherwise we're going to be just, as President Kimball described, aping the world. And I love that we can lean into this spiritual mission. And it's part of what makes us unique. I said before, and I'll say again, I think we will not succeed in the educational hierarchy in spite of our spiritual mission, but because of our spiritual mission. Just a few weeks ago, Elder Quentin L. Cook came to campus. He praised the faculty for path they were on and all the good that they were doing and then said, we have a little ways to go because we're not just educating for this world. We're educating for eternity. Yeah. It was an amazing talk. He also grounded all that we were doing in doctrine. He talked so doctrinally about what was the undergirding for everything that happened at BYU. And in education, it was an amazing talk to add to the ones that we've just spoken about. I loved that as well. And I want to talk about another recent address you gave. You and members of the church's executive education committee went to Las Vegas, first of several series of devotionals and firesides. But you mentioned that there may be times when people tell young people that they have to choose between their faith and their professional success. And that those two things might be incompatible. And you reassured them that that is completely untrue. (laughs) This is something that I try to talk to our students about. I try to talk to our faculty about. I try to talk to our employees about. That I just don't believe we can subscribe to the false dichotomy that you have to choose between professional excellence and our spiritual mission. Those two things can happen simultaneously. My predecessor as academic vice president was Jim Rasband, now Elder James Rasband of the 70, and he described them not as in competition with one another, but as paired aspirations, really a playoff of a false dichotomy. He called them paired aspirations. And for us at BYU, our spiritual mission and our academic mission are in fact just that, paired aspirations. 
Now, so much of what we accomplish at universities comes with the support of other people. What we've just been talking about, all that BYU does with the support of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Tell us about what and who have supported you in your life. You mentioned your wife earlier, and we'd love to hear about your family. Uh, So, yeah, for sure, the support. It starts with my wife. I know you already mentioned her, but my wife is an incredible uh, human being. She is an example to me in every way of a believer, of someone who practices what she preaches. She's kind. She understands service in amazing ways. And I just, she makes me a better man. I'm grateful that I met her when I did. She changed the course of my life. uh, And it's because of the goodness of her soul. So she's been amazing to me for the entire time. We've almost 30 years. This year's our 30-year anniversary, so that's incredible. My mom is also just such an important figure in my life. My mom had a difficult task, I think. I was not an easy child to raise, I'll just say that. Uh, But she was loving and patient and kind and supportive and encouraging through thick and thin and doing it all single-handedly is remarkable. And so she, my mom's been amazing. Uh, my mother-in-law is an incredible person as well. She has always been, my wife calls her a pillar of positivity. And I think it's absolutely true. She is just always upbeat and, and encouraging as well. And I'm grateful for her. I have three children. My oldest daughter is Maddie. I remember when we brought her from the hospital. She lit up our lives and uh, she's an amazing kid and I've always been grateful for she sends me just kind supportive texts and and just uplifting things in days when when I may have had a a tough day with an issue she's always got something positive to say Uh, my daughter Brittany just recently got married we've welcomed a son-in-law into our home that's exciting Brittany is also she's our sensitive kid she's always got an eye on where people are struggling and we know that Brittany's going to always look out for the ones that are struggling in our family grateful for, for her and my son just got back from a mission last summer, and he's a student at BYU as well. Brittany and Brian are at school, and he is the other man of the house, and he's taller than me. He's not afraid to remind me he's taller than me, and he is someone that I consider a friend, a best friend in a lot of ways. Luckily, he's not uh, exactly like his father. He got the best parts of his mom, but I hope he's got something from his dad too. So my family is my biggest support for sure. And I want to talk a little bit about the influence of education. You come from a family, you're the first generation of your family to go to college, and you end up with a doctorate. How does education change lives? Well, it's hard for me to describe how it's changed my life. Uh, It's, I can't even imagine what my life would have been if I hadn't had education. And despite not having graduated from college, my mom was always staunch supporter of me going to college. I mean that in word indeed and in dollars she was always willing to support me and sustain me throughout my education and i'm grateful for her i'm not sure i would have been as committed to education if it wasn't for her support and encouragement uh, i think it improves our ability to communicate with other people when we're educated we we can carry on conversations about a broad set of topics that's where a a broad General education does wonders for people. I think we get specialty in important ways that allow us to be employed and conversant in more deep ways in specific topics. 
I think it improves our earning potential. There's no question you can't ignore that piece of the puzzle. But education for me has been life-changing. And and each time I finished a degree, I thought, I'm probably done there. That's enough education. And luckily, I had mentors along the way, whether they be employees at BYU, whether they be faculty members at BYU, who I think saw more in me than I saw in myself, and they encouraged me to get more education. And for me, it's just been life-changing. I also, I believe the doctrine we teach that we will take our intelligences with us. And so that's part of, I think, the spiritual and eternal importance of education. It has value above and beyond what we might think of from just a secular perspective. Now I want you to look forward. In addition to us all hoping that we have a a winning football season (laughs) this year, what is your hope for BYU? certainly have exciting ideas for what we might do in sports, but that's not my hope and aspiration for BYU. I'd love for that to happen, and I'm as big a BYU fan as you're going to find on the planet, so those things are exciting to me. But my hope for BYU is that students who walk through our doors see their divine potential, and that that divine potential includes a study in an area that they find exciting, and that they finish their degrees and that they walk out of the university and they have a firmer commitment to making and keeping sacred covenants, to embracing their divine identity as children of heavenly parents who love them and that they go out and that they become the light that I know that they can all be. I was just with 7,000 new freshmen in the Marriott Center and as I looked up on their faces... It was magical. It was one of those moments where I looked at them and I saw the light in their eyes and I saw the excitement and enthusiasm for what they are about to undertake, which is their college education. It is hard to describe the energy and excitement and the spirit that was in that room. It was amazing. And we have a tradition at the Church News Podcast. We always end with the same question. We always give our guests the last word. And so as we conclude today, what do you know now that you didn't know before your time on BYU's campus? And then I'm hoping you can also share your testimony of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I guess I didn't know the prophetic destiny for a university in Provo, Utah. I didn't know what BYU could become and what its students could become if they invest themselves in the experiment that we're really in right now, which is the experiment that I would call becoming BYU. And so I've learned what that means, and that's what I'm trying to communicate to our campus community because I know that I've felt what it can become. My task is to figure out how to describe it and have everybody feel within the depths of their soul that same thing that I feel about our prophetic destiny at BYU. And I'm just humbled by your invitation for me to bear my testimony. I know that Jesus is the Christ. I've felt his love in deep and powerful ways in my life. I've felt his love in deep and powerful ways for my family I felt his love in deep and powerful ways 
for members of my ward when he says that he can make all that is unfair in this world right through his atoning sacrifice. I know he means that. I know it's real. And I know that that can be an incredible source of strength when we've got difficult trials that we're going through and there are people who have difficult things going on in their lives. But I know that he can change that experience and provide the peace and the comfort and the knowledge that we have a divine destiny as children of heavenly parents. I know that we're led by prophets, seers, and revelators. As as the president of Brigham Young University, I have the distinct privilege and honor to sit with them as they counsel with us as the board of trustees. And I'm humbled and awed by their wisdom by the revelation that I see happening sometimes in real time. And I know that President Russell M. Nelson is a prophet of God. I know that because I've tried, imperfectly as it might be, to live by the words that he teaches, and I have felt the difference in my life. And I know that he's a prophet of God, and I know that he's God's mouthpiece on the earth at this time. I know that the Book of Mormon is the Word of God, I have read it, and as I've read it, I've felt the truthfulness of its words. I've found answers to questions that I didn't even imagine finding within its pages. And I've read it in pages that I've read time after time again and never read it the same way. And I know that that's how God uses this as an instrument to teach us His will. And I know that The prophet of the restoration, Joseph Smith, saw what he said he saw that day in the grove. I know that he saw God the Father and his son, Jesus Christ. And that event changed the course of this world. And that the priesthood's been restored to the earth. And I know those things because I felt them deeply in my soul. And I share that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. have been listening to the Church News Podcast. I'm your host, Church News Executive Editor Sarah Jane Weaver. I hope you have learned something today about The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints by peering with me through the Church News window. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast so it can be accessible to more people. And if you enjoyed the messages we shared today, please make sure you share the podcast with others. Thanks to our guests, my producer, Kellyanne Halverson, and others who make this podcast possible. Join us every week for a new episode. Find us on your favorite podcasting channels or with other news and updates on the church on thechurchnews.com.